In the 1990s, the best thing a young woman could hope to be is a model with only a moderate drug addiction. But in the great U.S. of A., the inept efforts of the police departments left these young wannabe models vulnerable to heinous crimes. These are their stories. Dun dun. <laughs> <laughs> Well, welcome everybody to The Good Apples, a podcast about Law & Order SVU, the real-life events that inspired the show, and the worldview of the man himself, Dick Wolf. I'm Josiah. I'm Kamara. I'm Josh. And Jackal is again out today. So, it's uh, just the three of us. Um, we, uh, As I mentioned last episode, we record both of these on the same day, but the difference is uh, the first episode, last for you guys, two weeks ago's episode, I was drinking cold brew. As uh, now I am drinking a Modelo with lime at 3 p.m. <laughs> <laughs> so that's how my Sunday fun going. day. Sunday we're we're fun. doing our hobby. We're doing our <laughs> hobby and enjoying an adult beverage in the afternoon. Mm-hmm. That's right. So I'm yes, well, technically it's is, day this drinking. Is, this is the American dream. <laughs> this is the American dream. I wanted. I was thinking I need to get us into a more party mood here. We're gonna we're gonna up the energy level this episode. So. Uh, I'll get sloshed and we'll talk about gender. Does that sound good? Yeah. <laughs> everyone's getting sloshed and talking about gender these days. That's what everyone's doing. That's the problem with kids these days. Because nobody ever fucks up and says something sexist while drunk, right? No, I've never done that before. <laughs> yeah, I only do sexism while sober. Yeah, I've never said anything sexist before. So he could all give me high fives for that. Uh, I'm I'm one of the You're, good ones. Uh, yeah, you as were... his girlfriend, I can attest that Josiah doesn't say sexism. He just does sexism. <laughs> living living up to his reputation as the CEO of oppressing women and minorities. <laughs> okay, I don't want that joke transferring over here. Okay. okay. No, 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 that's okay. That's okay. I'll keep it in. But Oh, man. Mammonberg is going to ruin my life notice. with that joke. Mammonberg yeah. is going to ruin my life with that. It, silencer it, of women it, it's, and minorities joke. It's probably uh, yeah one of those that, that made sense if it just stayed at the popularity level of the early phase of Mammonberg. But uh, if, if we happened to It well. broke containment. Oh, my God. But yes, this is part two of our Boston Strangler little uh, two-parter here. So today we are talking about Boston Strangler, the 2023 movie, and the other Law & Order episode that references the Boston Strangler, at least explicitly, which is uh, us flying back to season one, episode three, or just look like one. So we got we got some some good stuff here. Um, I would say the this is the Law and Order episode with the most tenuous connection. I feel like to uh, to the Boston Strangler, it's it's got some influence, but it's it's a lot less about that, and it's it's got more of a main plot. It's one of the suspects happens to be kind of a Boston Strangler ripoff guy, but it's a lot about gender. Oh, yeah. So uh, it fits in with the 2023 Boston Strangler film, which stars Kiara Knightley, and focus way more on like. Uh, the journalists who broke the story being female journalists in the 60s, which is a, a rough time to be a woman. Seems like it. Seems like it. Yeah. 
So we're going to skip over explaining the Boston Strangler story a little bit this episode. If you don't know that, uh, you shouldn't be listening to this one. You need to go back and listen to the previous episode. Uh, <laughs> if you want that explanation. Um, this episode, we're going to get a little more gender with it. We're going we're gonna to talk about women and stuff. Um, <laughs> Let's get gender with Let's it. Let's get gender with beep, it. Beep, beep, beep. <laughs> real real gender more. hours over here. <laughs> Well, let's uh, let's go ahead and just start with. Um, do we want to start with the show or with the movie? What do you guys think? Uh, let's start with the show. Let's do it. All right. Let's start with the show this time. Let me get my notes. Oh wait, I didn't take notes. I just texted you a bunch during this episode. That was a bad move. Uh, <laughs> I took a bunch of notes, so Hell I yeah. can kind of walk us through the perfect the what happens. Oh, oh, that's right. We get to talk about. Uh... <laughs> I can go on a Steve Albini tangent. Yeah, so this episode is written by Michael R. Perry and directed by Rick Rosenthal. Um, and it's it's mostly an episode focusing on modeling. Um, I guess, uh, Camara, you took a lot of notes for this episode, so why don't you kind of guide us through the episode? Yeah, absolutely. So this episode starts off with a woman being dumped at a hospital by a van. Um, so she's being dumped in the parking lot of a hospital, and they identify her as uh, Jasmine, or Teresa is actually her her uh, birth-given name. But they find that this woman has been raped with a wooden object and stabbed repeatedly with a claw hammer. Um, so they're like, oh my god, you know, who did this heinous crime? And Detective Jeffries makes a point to say... Hey, you know, this this woman, she was this girl. She was a cuz she's a minor. Uh she was attacked in her face, her breast and her genitals. And Jeffries is like, that says bitch I'm going to destroy you. And it's kind of like that is a very personal, intimate, violent crime to happen. And kind of the reason interesting thing about this um this victim is her her name she'll get referenced throughout the episode as jasmine but she was actually born teresa and she had her name changed to jasmine as part of her modeling career so she is a model and she had her name changed so she could have kind of like a trademark of jasmine and her parents kind of split up uh whenever she she initially became a model um, and her mother insists on calling her Teresa, which she claims is her Christian given name. Um, mm -hmm. and that Jasmine is just the name they call her for exploiting her for modeling purposes. Um, so her mom is very much like not on the fan of her daughter being a model, but the dad is like all into it and, you know, kind of works as her agent almost. Yeah. It's, a. Uh... It's got kind of a fucked up, I don't know, it's 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 focusing on this kind of like fucked up relationship between uh, kind of modeling and stuff and the expectations yeah. on women's bodies. Um, you know, there's a side plot kind of going on throughout it where Stabler in his home life uh, is dealing with his teen daughter uh, not eating or it's it's uh, not eating enough. Anyway, I don't know if it, it's explicitly not eating, but it's 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 clear she's uh, she is, uh, you know choosing not to eat much because she wants to uh maintain a certain look certain body type um yeah yeah um so they they kind of question the dad and they're like hey you know what the hell happened to your daughter um how did this happen where was she who was she with 
And the dad is like, you know, I dropped her off at a modeling event and her agent was supposed to be in charge of her. She said, trust me, I'll handle everything. And he kind of just left her there. Um, so the dad was, you know, kind of clueless. So then they headed down to the um, modeling studio. Um, Laszlo, uh, Nina Laszlo is the uh, modeling agent. And they head down to her studio and talk to her. And I must say, she is kind of like a cool girl bitch where she's like rolling her eyes when the cops are asking her questions and she's kind of like leave me alone I have better things to do this is this is modeling uh I'm busy get out of here with your investigations yeah I worth mentioning played by BB Newearth who uh played uh Fraser Crane's wife Lilith on Cheers so she's <laughs> like this is her character type like yeah, some, yeah. some some variation of just being like yeah cold, cold and bitchy um also went on to I think star in the Law and Order spin-off uh Trial by Jury that was pretty short-lived oh <laughs> playing a defense attorney I think interesting so I, I would uh, love to see another, her as a defense attorney yeah another case I think they bring the character back a few times um but yeah another case of like an early season villain uh getting a recurring hero role later on in the show uh, diane neal yeah. being the uh the the foremost example yeah uh, in svu specifically yeah absolutely anyway yeah yeah so she's an evil modeling agent yeah and they they question her and they're like hey what the fuck happened we got a you know, really brutalized, raped woman on our hands, or girl on our hands. What happened? And she's like, I don't know. I wasn't there. Uh, ask the photographer. He was, he would have been the guy on set. And then they're like, oh, fuck. Okay. So then they go and they talk to this photographer. And this photographer, um, right off the bat, Stabler accuses him of being on meth right away. Um, so Stabler is right away, you know. Killing just, it, man. You know. <laughs> Oh, he does not like this guy right off the get-go. Um, and this is my favorite scene in the whole episode, actually. He goes, the photographer goes, this is Giuliani, New York. You guys won the drug war, remember? Oh, God, yeah. so good. What a line. What a line. <laughs> oh, so man. he's like, quit accusing me of being on drugs, man. Quit accusing me of giving drugs to models. You guys have won this war. Yeah. Although oh, it doesn't, so it, it ends up that he was giving up drugs to the models. Oh yeah, there, right? oh, oh yeah, yeah. But that was so. De- yeah, he ended up. Yeah, he was totally giving drugs to models. Um, however, but he, got, he got his he got his little jab he got in, his, and he I got thought a it was funny. Yeah, yeah. So then uh, they talk to uh, the photographer's business associate, um, and they're like, "Hey, you know, do you, what do you know? Have did you see her there? You know what happened?" and um, she brings up the measuring man. She goes, you know who probably did this? It was probably the measuring man, who is a guy who's been targeting models in the industry for for decades now. And he recently got out of jail. And she mentions um, that she was a victim of the measuring man and that um, she got a postcard when he got out of jail. And she kind of makes this glib comment. She said, it, apparently it only costs 10 cents for women's rights. Mm, yeah um for him to send that postcard to her um so they went to they went to visit him uh this measuring man um who's named ricky blaine in the show um and they visit this measuring man and 
they're kind of questioning him, and they're like, you know, are you fucking going around? Are you measuring girls? Are you uh, trying to figure out or pose as a scouting agent and figure out their measurements as a as a way to actually just break into their homes and sexually assault them? And um, he he starts to measure Olivia. He gives Olivia Benson's measurements out. And I was just like, why are they doing this? Why would they give, why would they give Olivia Benson's measurements out on screen? I just mm. thought that was crazy. Like in an episode about how young women are subject to an- potential anorexia because of unfair beauty standards by the modeling industry or drug use, why are they actually putting her measurements out there? You know what I that's, mean? That's that's an interesting point. I hadn't thought of that. I didn't think I didn't realize that. That's yeah, they are. I just thought that was crazy. Recreating the uh, expectation I, <laughs> there a little bit. Yeah, well, even, they absolutely even, did. Well, yeah, even in microcosm, I mean, just like the the whole show is at war with itself. It has these liberal ideals, but it is still just like it can't question the pillars of our culture or society at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the show. Yeah, I, I like the the show is at war with itself is like a ongoing like that's a good like phrase for kind of what we've been trying to place our finger on. I think throughout you know the last few episodes even is that the show is yeah it just it's it's always kind of fighting itself because it's got a bunch of different impulses. It's got the exploitation impulse. It's got the uh, you know pro cop impulse, and it's got the uh, liberal idealism impulse, and they're all three of them are pulling in opposite directions constantly. <laughs> yeah yeah at this point olivia assaults the measuring man yeah right? yes. who is who is definitely pretty... not yes. definitely not just albert de salvo working yeah. in an auto shop yeah let's make this connection now so this is yeah this is our, the, uh, the, the guy they connection. the guy they cast looks exactly like de salvo <laughs> like yeah 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 no i think i think it's a it's it's an interesting little connection um it's another so this 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 episode's taking the position that the the measure that kind of that the Boston Strangler was the right guy, you know, because this is based vaguely off of, you know, DeSalvo and um, whatever. Although, okay. yeah, uh, well, the nature. Yeah, it's the nature of the crimes are also very Boston Strangler. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, think- it, like at least on the level of violence. So it's definitely in, inspired by that. But it is like taking the creative liberties to like, Oh, what if it's, you know, mm-hmm. it's this other thing about the modeling industry and, yeah, and beauty yeah. standards and exploitation of women and young girls. And, um, yeah. So well, yeah, there's it wasn't this, this, this fucked up part at the beginning where they mention, um, they say, right, Oh, this. uh, the, um, the model, she had been raped with a wooden object. And then the detective goes, how do you know it was wooden? And they go, we found splinters. Oh, man, that's awful. And um, that's also based off the, uh, the, the, the... The Boston Strangler case is he left one of the elderly victims. Um, he left her propped up in a bed uh, with a broom handle inserted in her vagina. Mm. Um, so he was I... also fond of using wooden objects, specifically brooms, uh, to sexually assault these women. So the measuring man, so the the measuring man in this episode isn't doesn't end up being the actual killer. They, he's a suspect initially. Yeah. Who um, you know is based off of the Boston Strangler, but he was released from jail on good behavior. 
um, which is kind of interesting. Both both of these episodes about the Boston Strangler have that taking place where whoever gets accused gets let off by good behavior as opposed to what actually happened, which was DeSalvo was murdered in prison. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. It's, it's both- right. Yeah, it's that uh, it's that obsession with like defense attorney overreach or or something. Like, yeah, they this have obsession to do with that. like, oh yeah, all the worst guys they get released for good behavior, like yeah, like the goal of prison isn't to retain as many people inside at all times as possible. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 pretty strange, um, but yeah, because of the nature of the crime, they go to the measuring man. They think maybe this is the Boston, you know, the, 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 this, you know, the, this episode's fill in for the Boston Strangler had come back, but it's not. So I don't know. It's, right, it's which, kind of an interesting little appearance, but yeah, go ahead, Josh. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's like clearly their first riff clearly inspired by, but you know, focused on a different issue. And then they do their like proper Boston Strangler episode a few seasons later, you know, like two seasons later. Um, yeah. And I think, I think part of that is probably that, you know, I, I think that they are not quite, I, I don't want to speak to this. So, so Chimera chime in if I'm wrong, but I think in the first season, they're less likely to admit cops fuck up and it's with time they start to go like, okay, well the cops we're following, they don't fuck up usually, although later on they'll, they'll let them fuck up a few times, but like. The cops we're following don't fuck up, but it was past cops. And that's the take that we get to by season yeah, three. Yeah, or other but, departments. Um, yeah. Because there, there is oh. some kind of standoffs between them and Homicide or them and Vice or... Actually, yeah, know. we'll we'll return to this subject actually when Narcotics shows up in this episode, which is yeah. know, <laughs> on my list for one of my favorite Very scenes fun. of this episode. Yeah. <laughs> Very fun. Um, okay, well, so in the meantime... They they find oh hey the last the last girl this woman this girl was seen with um, Jasmine was seen with was a girl named Vanessa so they're like okay we're gonna go find Vanessa and we're gonna uh, you know ask her questions and see you know if she knew what happened who could have done this and they go to see Vanessa and they run into two cops coming out of her dorm or her her home and they're like. Hey, what the heck? And they're like, oh yeah, that girl, she's dead. She's she's dead, dead. And they're like, no way, with a claw hammer? And he was like, yeah, how'd you know? And they had a little, ah, oh, you were reading my notes, goofball moment. And um, they were kind of like, well, it's nice running into you, but for real, our witness is dead. And they're like, yeah, no, she's, she's dead, dead. So uh, you don't get a witness now. So now the squad has to collaborate with those homicide detectives um, to, um, figure out who, who did this one murder and brutally assaulted Jasmine. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, those, and it's a, it's a crossover with the main law and order series. It's Briscoe and, uh, mm-hmm. who's the other guy's name? Yeah. That they run into Briscoe. Yep. Briscoe green crossover event. <laughs> yeah. So they do, they do a crossover event right in the middle of the or right in the beginning of the the show, episode three, and they already have a crossover event. This fucking show kills me. They're always doing crossover events. They love their crossover events. Because they're going to make you watch every damn thing that Dick Wolf produces, and I sure will. I sure will. (laughs) Chicago PD, baby. Very good. Oh, man. Um, Okay, so the next, uh, Munch um, tells a story um, of of a methed out guy 
who booby-trapped his own home so much that one day he tripped and killed himself. Um, So that was Munch's little appearance in the episode, is he's just like, yeah, let me tell you a story about a guy on meth who uh, booby-trapped his house. And so there's there's Munch doing his little uh, schizo conspiracy uh, contribution to the to the episode. <laughs> oh, I love Munch. I love when Munch shows Munch up. Is, Munch is good. Next, we have Jeffries testifying in court. And uh, they are trying to try a father for raising his son in an environment that condoned rape. So this boy has uh, raped someone, and now they're putting the father of the boy on trial for um, being an accessory to the crime. Um, and they say he's an accessory to the crime because they find the comic book Rape Man in, uh, in his home. Yeah, this was, this was a really interesting little throwaway scene. Um, although I, I actually don't think it's a throwaway scene. I actually think it's got some interesting writing because I it's... think it does tie into the main theme of the episode pretty well but i'll i'll come i think we'll come back to that once we get to the very end and once we know what happened but yeah i think uh josh you're actually are you you're like semi-familiar with the the comic that this is based Uh, off of right yeah tangentially like that makes it sound like i read it um i haven't read it (laughs) um but uh no, I've been aware of it for a while because uh, one of my favorite musicians slash producers, uh, Steve Albini of uh, Big Black, had a band in the late 80s, early 90s named after the Rape Man comic, just called Rape Man. Rape Man. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so it's more, uh, uh, yeah, it's Steve Albini at his edgiest, kind of after Big Black, but before Shellac. And. Uh, hmm. Like, yeah, the subject matter of the songs doesn't even get to that. I mean, there's a song called Kim Gordon's Panties. So there's like there's like a pervy edge to it. But I mean, Big Black was a, a, you know, the subject matter was always pretty dark. I mean, there's a tune off the first record called Jordan, Minnesota about, uh, yeah, like a a satanic panic, like um, child sexual abuse case in in Minnesota in the 80s. Um, Mm. So. Yeah, like he he's he's a you know kind of guy with roots in the punk scene with and and just attracted to a lot of dark subject matter and that continues to this day. But uh, I think even at this point, he's the first to say that he's like not necessarily proud of a lot of his his public statements and output um, at earlier points in his career because yeah you know he you know there was a sense amongst like you know a certain stripe of progressive leaning edgy punk artist guy that's like oh well all the good fights have already been won so we can kind of indulge in this this ironic edgelordism uh Mm -hmm. and uh, then on the other side of it out here he's like yeah i think we just kind of you know there were those of us that thought we were on the right side and could do no wrong and then there were a lot of people who were you know just sincerely uh, just saying that shit, <laughs> yeah. you know, um, and it and it all just kind of contributed to a coarsening of the culture over time. Um, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. So I mean, yeah. So just dude attracted to to dark subject matter, and uh, uh, you know, which is to say that uh, I don't know. I'm not defending it, uh, <laughs> defending no. the comic, but it's it is an influence over art. I do appreciate. Um, so. Yeah, the fact that it's being pointed to as like 
you know, something just simply o- something that, you know, you own that can sort of contribute to like a permissive atmosphere. And that's that's the thing. It can't it, like that's a complicated question. Like, um, I don't think art and culture is blameless in, you know, because uh, clearly it it, it influences it changes, people. On, yeah. like, like people make their people make their choices. People are responsible for their actions. But like uh, people clarify their own motivations through art. So, I mm-hmm. mean, it's just a much more complicated, you know, that's, uh, right. It's, you know, an artist exploring an idea and somebody kind of takes it and, and commits something like, no, we can't say the artist inspired that act, but like, you do have to make room for this discussion of like, well, what role does the art play? Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think the basic, what you can say is that like, no, reading a comic called Rape Man will not make you rape someone, but reading a comic called Rape Man will make you think about rape a lot. And if you are somebody who is already, you know, got those motivations kind of in mind, uh, you know, it can well, come out, for, you know. For those of the, for, um, those of you who are not familiar with the Rape Man comic, um, it features the adventures of a high school boy who becomes a superhero by night and he settles scores with women by raping them. So there's, there's very graphic rape scenes depicted in the comic. Yeah. Um, so um, yeah, it's, I, th- those are there. Yeah. 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 I think it's like, it, it's almost like a vigilante, like rape for hire thing, I guess is kind of what this is. So they, yeah, of course I'm correcting the the TV show's depiction of the bad comic book. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, it, well no, it's not he's not technically a superhero, he's a vigilant. Um, uh, <laughs> no, you don't get it. It's okay. <laughs> right. I mean, and and I think there is more of like a dark satirical tone to it, but it is extreme content. There's no getting around it. It's yeah. it's dealing with some really you know, yeah, very thorny, very adult, very taboo subject matter. Um, and yeah, and, uh, so yeah, I mean, uh, right. I don't, I don't want this precedent set in actual law, but like, yeah, I would not want to furnish a 13 year old with copies of the Rape Man comic book. Of course, they'll find it on their own if they want to, but yeah. <laughs> Well, yeah. so, but then that begs the next question, should the father be held responsible for bringing yeah. those into the home? And now, so on a legal level, I think on a moral level, you can chastise the father, but the, the, the premise that the show comes to that we can yeah. hold the father responsible for his son committing a rape because he had an edgy comic in, in the house. I, I just don't think you can legally make that case at all. I think you can morally make but, that case, but like, uh, but cops know the truth. Only sickos read sick material. Yeah. Why would which, a normal yeah. person read rape man? You yeah. know, <laughs> which, yeah, by, I mean, you know, Jeffries was definitely like horrified by it when she was describing it. She was like disgusted. Yeah. yeah and I, th- I think the thing is like, I don't think we're defending rape man specifically to be no, entirely no. clear, but I, think I mean, what, we're pretty, what I, yeah, we're pretty ignorant of the actual material yeah, itself. Have, so it's kind of hard it. to, uh, but the premise alone is like, uh, yeah. 
I probably don't need it in the world, but yeah, but it's, but what it's I, out there, you know. But I think there's yeah. like consequences to this line of thinking that again, it's kind of like it's kind of like the way SVU as a whole functions, right? Where it's like you you want to excuse the extrajudiciousness of the cops because they're dealing with fucking sickos, they're dealing with rapists and pedophiles. However. You know, you you have to also think about their behavior in line of just like policing as a whole. And so the same thing goes here with censorship where I'm like, yeah, I don't I don't love rape, man. That doesn't sound like it would be a good thing. But I think if you like, you know, have this kind of legal mentality, like there's a lot of art that deals with unpleasant subject matter that if the mentality is just if a sicko consumed this. They obviously committed the crime that I think I think ends up harming like artists, but also like I'd say even like queer people would be an example of this where like at this time, like non normative sexual content could would be labeled sicko shit. I mean, like as we as we even saw in the first uh, first episode of of SVU entirely where they're like laughing about trans stuff and everything like that. This is where it gets tricky because like. You know, once well, you open that door, you know, and you can well, we're like, a, blame someone for a crime for having consumed a content. I mean, oh, God. Like, uh, yeah, because we are in a cultural moment as of this recording going on for a while of, of this playing out in like school board meetings and, and yeah. public libraries. And uh, uh, so there are there are places where pro LGBT educational materials and, and literature uh uh, of, are are being removed from libraries by getting framed um, as you know pedophile shit. man yeah yeah pedophile man is you know it, like you know labeling gender queer or like a text like that as as just being like, just, yeah the, pedophile shit yeah I mean so that's I, I, that's where I get nervous yeah. about all this yeah I know yeah I, yeah it's <laughs> uh, right and just and and like yeah this is this is like. A sort of almost unironic message being promoted in one of the most successful television shows of all time. Yeah, that's... one of the most popular television shows of all time, and it's yeah, it it's it's, uh, it's scary. It's a little scary. It is. It is. Because it, it definitely portrays Jeffries as like the person in the right in that in that interaction in that court case. And um, I will note that the you know the this little uh, side bit about Jeffries having this court case um, is interesting because it demonstrates the uh, the kind of central it kind of reveals the central themes of the episode, um, yeah. which is how media influences teenagers and how parents influence children. This was the point I was going to make. I'm so glad you brought it up. This is this is what I think is I, I think this does actually tie into the rest of the episode, even though this scene is just like a quick little uh, interaction and then it goes away. Um, I don't think it's just checking up on Jeffries. I think it's setting a tone for a theme that's throughout this episode, which is, yeah. Um, when people may, you know, that the, the, the show is arguing that people try to live up to media. They try to, they, they, they behave as media tells them to behave. And so in the case of men, it makes them rapists because they're, if they read a lot of content about rape, and in the case of women, it makes them anorexic or, mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. you know, what, whatever, you know, have body, uh, body issues, eating disorders, stuff like that, because they're trying to live up to what's on an ad. So that's kind of what the show seems to be arguing, I think, in this episode. 
and also that uh, that uh, yeah. all model agencies are run by pedophiles. But we'll yeah, who's that. yeah, right? Who's <laughs> yeah? It, it's trying to figure out who the real groomers are. Uh, I mean, I th- this is this feels like I mean, it's it it's an obvious point, but one that didn't really just fully dawn on me until recently. I mean, we were talking about this uh, uh, when we just hang out because we're friends. Um, we're all friends, actually. <laughs> yes. Um, uh, like the extent to which the the groomer panic is a projection of guilt on the part of like the heterosexual socialization of children like because mm-hmm. it's very commonplace to sexualize children as long as they're performing the correct gender roles like i it, like somebody uh I, it was just like an Instagram post or something, but you know, it's like, you know, contrasting the images of like these people like yelling at school board meetings about, about groomers and pedos, but then they'll like share videos of like a toddler hiking a woman's skirt up and like being egged on by all the adults in the room because boys will be boys or whatever. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. So it is just, <laughs> Yeah. yeah. Well, and, I mean, and not so, to mention the. So uh, is it? The... Is it? I mean, is it giving away the game that, like, you know, the the ultimate goal of the cis hetero patriarchy is to mold men into the perfect predators and women into the perfect bi- victims? You know. Yeah. You you have the boy consume rape man. You have the you have the woman read the fashion magazine and develop anorexia, physically mm-hmm. weaken herself, uh, and make herself desperate for validation from men. F- feminism. Feminism. Yeah. We did it. Woo. We did it, folks. <laughs> um. So we then, solved uh, gender. <laughs> then the uh, squad uh, goes and interviews the photographer a second time, and it's like, "Hey, you know, we have two girls dead now. You know, did you see anything up with these two girls? Where did they go after the the shoot, or what happened?" And his business partner, Deborah, suspiciously sneaks in and she goes, I saw them sneaking out to go to a party to score drugs. And they're like, oh shit, they were, you know, they were on drugs. So then they go and investigate that. Um, and the, det- the detectives speak with um, someone who describes supermodels as the greek goddesses of our time specifically a camille paglia quote that was that oh, was yeah, funny yeah. this the, whoever was right in this episode who did i say right was right in this episode well, this this was a very literary episode there was a lot of very like i don't know you, you know oh, yeah, literary there's references like in this the uh, the writer that munch hates is like an early suspect that's, that's one of the funniest scenes oh. i think we might have skipped that but i laughed so hard at that <laughs> it was so funny <laughs> Oh, uh, man. Munch is well, just like, you had a boring book and it sucked. <laughs> and you don't deserve all of the praise and acclaim you, you currently enjoy, you fucking hack. <laughs> I'm a cop. I'm the literary detective. He really was. Oh, yeah. He's like the disco. Like, it's Disco Elysium. Munch was being art cop at that moment all of a sudden. He's like criticizing the book on artistic like like levels out of nowhere. It was pretty funny. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. God. Also, I think a subtle Michael Crichton reference in that interaction too, because he mentioned the um, what in the the one of his books, the the author that it, you know that Munch is making fun of had uh, written clearly about one of his critics and made made them an awful person, which is of course uh, something that Michael Crichton is famous for. 
Uh, I'm blanking up the the critic, but he uh, put a he made he made a character that's clearly the critic that panned his previous book and made him a, a pedophile with a small penis. Uh, Who is also so... impotent? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so right. I think that, so I like think that was a Crichton reference. Yeah, but... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> by admitting the characters inspired by you, it's going to do more damage to your reputation <laughs> than. If... <laughs> Anyway, yeah, look up the uh, another uh, the small another penis frequent role. topic of discussion <laughs> amongst ourselves. For some reason, yeah, the I'm career very and legacy of Michael Crichton. He's a fascinating man. Fascinating he really is. Man. He really is. I um, I can't lie. Jurassic Park is a very formative film for me. So same, yeah, same. Yeah, we have a we have you know the iconic scene of uh, our guy with the with, with the, the 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 flare. Yeah, the red Sam, flare Sam, Sam O'Neill holding the flare. Yeah, up and he's, he's the standing dog, it yeah, in, in the, front of the the T Rex, right. right? So we have a poster of that, but instead of a T Rex, it's been cropped out with a kitten. Amazing. Yeah, so it's just this big kitten. That he's so we like, have a big <laughs> we have a big poster of that in our apartment because we're tacky twenty year olds and we can have that. It's it's still it's still allowed for a few more years before you have yeah. to like start putting yeah. frames on everything and yeah. say, oh, I found it at an antique store. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we'll we'll put a frame on our Evil Dead poster and suddenly it'll be t- it'll be classy. <laughs> no, the the advanced move is to like swap it out for the Japanese poster or like a foreign one. <laughs> And frame it. Like that's how you get away with that's it in your thirties. Yeah. I oh, don't God. know. My Twilight poster is just perfect as it is. And that's <sighs> is staying up. It, it's that's just, staying it, up forever. It's just taped to the wall. Do you have it framed? Uh, no, it's I have not it framed. framed. No, it's actually a canvas print, like a shitty canvas print, and I put it up with thumbtacks. Yeah. Amazing. It looks so bad, um, but <laughs> I love it. But I love it, and it is, you know uh, what? When I have children, it will go in their nursery. That's <laughs> yeah. how much I love it. This is something I've just had to accept dating dating Chimera. That no matter no matter how much I hate Twilight, that this is yeah. it, Twilight's going to be a part I'm of a my Twilight life. Twilight fan till the day I die. Yeah. <laughs> no I mean, escape. yeah. Speaking of speaking of grooming kids. Oh God. <laughs> No. no. Yeah, um, yeah I, we have a whole Not movie Jacob. to talk about. We should yeah, probably, we, we should probably okay, get moving. Okay, <laughs> okay let's keep happens. it moving. You, you get half okay. a beer in me during an episode. Uh, we just can't stay on topic. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, um, Stabler is then investigating. You know, going doing his doing his police work, and he comes across a person whose specialty is in eating disorders. Mm-hmm. And he's like, oh, shit, let me pull you aside. Let's talk about my daughter for a minute. And he goes, you know, doctor, what is what is the fine line between anorexia and just dieting? Um, because his daughter in the episode is featured only eating yogurt for breakfast. And they're trying to get her to have some eggs, some bacon, some sausage, some sort of protein. And she's like, ew, no, that has lots of fat. I'm not going to eat that. And she will only eat yogurt. And she's like that at all her meals, refusing to eat her food um, because she's trying to watch her figure. Um, so then the um, they have a little insert here, which I thought was nice. Um, this is like demonstrating the, you know, the kind of liberal ideals of the show is they have a little excerpt here um, by that doctor that's like, Anorexia is a serious problem that many, many uh, teens face. 
and it's about control. They gain satisfaction from refusing the food. And if you see any of the warning signs, get professional help. And then they go through the warning signs of anorexia, and they're like, you know, if you see any of these, you need to get immediate help. And, you know, they kind of look at the well, camera well, like... Law and order as public service announcement. I mean, well, is, it, it is going to be so, a reoccurring Just, so, just theme. so you're aware, 90 teens. Well, I mean, this is... I mean, it, it airs on the same network that has the more you know, the public... You know, this is the public service announcement. Like, we're the civically responsible TV station. Yeah. Um, Which also, I feel I, like, just just leans it even more into being kind of an exploitation piece of oh, work. Yeah. Too, cause oh, it's, yeah. Because it's, it's, it's fucking... It's the 30s exploitation movies. It's it totally... It's like oh we're no we're not we're not uh yeah we're not reveling in in the uh were some uh, details of of uh uh, yeah uh, um teenage women self-destructing no we're educating you about (laughs) that's right and i feel educated after this episode um although no i i did i did think though the thesis about like the i think it it ties in with kind of this this the gender stuff we're going to be talking about to the thesis that anorexia specifically um i and i i'm not a psychologist so i don't know if this is true but at least in in the show it makes the claim that anorexia is particularly about power and trying to take power back power over your body um mm-hmm. which i i think was an interesting thing to specifically bring up to this it, it very much is like the show is uh is allow is kind of like allowing a little bit of um kind of politics of the body to be kind of reflected on very briefly not for long but you know we get a little <laughs> bit of that so look at that good job yeah, guys <laughs> they then then through their series of investigative processes uh find that um these models were taking drugs to maintain their image um so um, they find out that they or they find the doctor who is ordering the drugs and they actually find out that he is like a um, a person in a vegetative state, like someone who had a stroke. Yeah, who, someone is using been, his name. Someone's yeah. been forging his prescription pad to order these drugs and send them to some to some random P.O. box location. And. You know, Olivia and Elliot are like, you know, we are not concerned about making drug busts. We're just here to, you know, we're following the trail of the pills to get at the killer, uh, Vanessa and whoever attacked uh, Jasmine. And their captain is kind of like, well, you guys are towing the line. You need to call narcotics in if you're finding, you know, evidence of drug activity you need to loop in you know the police department that deals with drug activity and they're kind of like well you know we'll try not to and he's like okay you know just be careful guys um so he sends them on their merry way which and oh go ahead oh i was gonna say and this is kind of funny because the show is explicit is kind of coming out anti-drug war which is kind of that's where that reference to the drug war earlier in the episode i think pays off a little bit because it's like they're trying to walk this fucking weird ass line uh, where that the drug war was bad and narc narcotic cops are dumbasses and assholes that are only useful when you can use them. Uh, yep. but oh, like, yeah. <laughs> Bring in Joey pool. Yeah. <laughs> they're only useful then, but on the whole they're uh, you know, drug cops suck and, and the show doesn't like drug cops. And so it's just, I don't know. It's just kind of a funny line to be like wa- walking there where, it's trying to be pro-police, but anti-drug war. I, I don't know. It's kind of... 
Um, but yeah, yeah, Chimera, you carry on here. So after we introduce that the narcotics um, cops suck, uh, they'll yeah, come Yeah, they, they immediately bust a guy um, at the P.O. box who is picking up pills. And um, <clears throat> there's this uh, hilarious scene where they're like, hey, man, what are you doing? Why are you picking up these pills? Why are you running these drugs? And the guy goes... Hey man, I only got this job because my buddy uh, got another job playing Stonewall Jackson in a Civil War drama. So now I run the drugs for a hundred bucks a week. It's not my fault. <laughs> this is what I mean. The the writing in this episode is so literary and like making historical references and stuff. And they they always worked. The jokes always worked for me. I don't know. I was always laughing. <laughs> every time like so what a hyper specific thing of like oh i'm running the drugs now because my my buddy got in a, a civil war reenactment of stonewall jackson <laughs> pretty good such a funny line such a funny line um <laughs> then uh <laughs> they decide okay we got the guy who's delivering the drugs we know where he's delivering the drugs it's the Laszlo modeling agency, so they're gonna head there immediately. But first, we gotta bring in the big guys. We gotta get the big guns involved. And they call, they finally call for help from narcotics. And these big assholes, they come in and they uncover the pill operation at the modeling agency. So they, yeah. And I, I would say, if I'm making like list of favorite scenes, I think that's, I guess, a thing I do now. I guess I did that last episode, so I'll do it. <laughs> I'll say favorite scenes in this, hands down, are uh, one, the back and forth between Munch and the writer, um, and then this scene, when the drug cops burst in. And then I have one more that I'll talk about later. But the scene where the drug cops burst in is so funny, because it it does a good job of communicating, <laughs> like, you know, we need them and they're useful for this episode, but also keep in mind they're complete assholes. Like, the instant we see the drug cop, he's just like this big, meaty guy who just looks like a thumb, just screaming in the camera like, everybody <laughs> down. Everybody <laughs> just, get down! Right, it's, yeah, it's you, you, the bull in the china shop. Like, yeah. It's like, yeah. <laughs> all right, yeah. we need a little brute force. Let's call the narcotics division. Uh, to come knocking on the modeling agency. You know you know what it is? is uh, Law and Order has a Team America uh, mentality of politics. <laughs> yeah. I'm glad you... Okay, you got what I'm saying. The, uh, yeah. You know the assholes D fuck... The dicks, dicks pussies dicks and assholes theory of politics. <laughs> yes. Um, which is, uh, if you're not familiar with the, the great and amazing... <laughs> Br brilliant even uh political <laughs> the satire of our time <laughs> team america yeah. world police out of the of course out of south parks uh you know so basic political theory is that you know there's you know liberals are pussies and uh conservatives are are uh are are dicks, are dicks. and you know it sucks that the conservatives they fuck over the pussies you know they fuck over the liberals but you also need the dicks because they fuck assholes i.e uh <laughs> terrorists terrorists and criminals and criminals so you know you need you need both you need the pussies to keep people in line but you need the dicks or to like keep people empathetic but you need the dicks to to really do shit um, which is yeah, this is stupid. This yeah, is really that's stupid, not but... that's not the most. It's yeah, it's it's not the dumbest libertarian line on. <laughs> yeah, it's it's. 
pretty... no, there's two. No, there's. It's just I've met people in real life who think it's a genuine insight. Oh no, me too. I, that's actually unironically a thing. I've heard a number of people be like, "Well, that see, that's why the movie's pretty good." Yes, because you know <laughs> this is this monologue, monologue, and I'm like, "Are you shitting me?" Are you? But anyway, <laughs> anyway, that's Law and Order's position here. Is the the narc the narcotics? They're they're dicks. And most of the time they are going after people who don't deserve it. But, you know, the the more bleeding heart liberals um, are using them effectively to go after this this particular <laughs> sick. I, I love that our SVU unit is the pussies in this situation. Yeah, that's, you know, <laughs> they are the bleeding heart liberals. You know, they're all about women's rights and stuff. That's that's, you know, that's supposed to be their thing. Supposedly. Yep. Su- supposedly. <laughs> Okay, so the narcotics cops just <laughs> so the destroy this modeling yeah. agency. Yeah, they just take everyone in, right? They're taking everyone in for for drug possession, for trafficking oh. of drugs, etc. They're getting everyone, they're busting everyone for the drugs. What, was Where did the line come in? <laughs> uh, just in some of my notes, uh, speed keeps the girls in fighting trim. So like that's oh, what they're right because yeah. they're they're getting prescription oh, amphetamines through this like that yeah the weird pill mill scheme and yeah uh, I can't remember if that was before or after the bust but that was that was a line that stuck out to me also the epithet for oral sex that comes later uh, the Lewinsky stuff yeah <laughs> I oh. that was oh my line. yeah, yeah. Um, but that's, that's well in a second Skipping that's ahead. That's, I mean, that's exactly what we're going to talk about next is they then find out uh, that the photographer, Parisi, um, that he liked to have sex with these underage models and photograph himself doing it. And they found out that he had a private collection uh, that he kept uh, photographs of himself with underage girls. And so they're like, oh, shit, we got to get our hands on that. Um, but they find out that Jasmine actually stole the collection, and the next thing they know, that she is in the ER. So they're, like, looking at Parisi for this crime now. They're like, oh, shit, he, you know, he did this. Um, and so they go to him immediately, and he claims it was consensual sex. And yes, an underage. is like, um, yeah, no, that, she's that underage. That you are employing, or like that you, you are the director. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> an underage person that you have authority over. Yeah, totally consensual. Buddy. Which, this is this is where the, because they dropped the Lewinsky line earlier mm-hmm. on, where, you know, they, they use that as a reference to oral sex, but also like... I don't know. It does kind of set the stage for this reveal also, because I mean, that is the big kind of issue of the Lewinsky thing to some, you know, to the, yeah, you know, the Clinton, the Clinton scandal, right? Is it's, it's not just whether she consented or not. It's the president doing it. It's, it's a power imbalance, which I would say yeah. like, uh, so, you know, like for, for 1997, I will say, uh, decently nuanced notion of consent in the show. Uh, so there's that, at least. The show is very much um, aware that the power imbalance thing is a problem. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so that's good. Then they find out that um, Parisi's business partner, Deborah, they find out, oh my god, they used to be engaged, the photographer and his business partner. And they're like, that's crazy. Why did they hide that information from us? Um, so they kind of, you know, go and ask them, um, 
why are you doing this? And they brought them into the station and they were like, we think they did it. We think they did it together. So they kind of stage a scene where they're like, we're going to make them think that each other turned on them. And oh, so yeah, they, yeah. They, they like do some, do some half-ass little acting stunt where they're like, yup, this is the guy. And then just kind of walks classic through cop the room. Tricks. Yeah. Does some classic cop tricks and uh, tricks, tricks them to thinking that the other has already talked. So then that's how they convince both of them to start confessing everything. Um, and uh, Deborah, you know, kind of dramatically pulls off her sunglasses that she's been wearing the whole episode. And she reveals that one of her eyes was blinded by the measuring man many yeah. years ago. Did, did we mention specifically Deborah's tie-in here? That, that Deborah's the reason they go after the measuring man in the but, beginning. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. yeah, yeah. we did. Just making, okay, just making sure that we clarified that. <laughs> yeah, that she was the one who sent them on that hunt. Um, yeah, and now we're finding out that she actually had something to do with the murder. Um, mm-hmm. So um, she says... That Jasmine showed the photographs uh, from uh, Parisi's private collection, uh, the photographs he was taking with underage models. He shows it to Deborah, who was at the time his fiance, and she like loses her shit. And she's like, oh, my God, you're having sex with all these underage girls and you're photographing it and you're cheating on me and blah, blah, blah. And loses her shit. And she gets mad at Jasmine and Vanessa, who are the ones showing her the things. She gets mad in the moment and she attacks them with a claw hammer and she kills Vanessa on accident, I guess, if you can kill on accident. And then she uh, brutally attacks um, Jasmine, but doesn't kill her. And then she's like, Oh shit, I'm in a pickle. So then she calls in the photographer Parisi to help her out. And he, he comes in and it's his idea to uh, assault Jasmine with the uh, broomstick, the wooden object um, to her vagina uh, trauma that we referenced earlier. Um, So it was him who did that, and then him who said, let's drop her off at a hospital. Um, And uh, it was, you know, it was his idea to make it look like a rape that had, you know, gone wrong or something, or was just very brutal or whatever. And... uh, then they're like, wow, that's that's crazy. Um, and Deborah kind of has this really dramatic scene. Number three, this is my favorite. This is my third, the third of my favorite scenes from this episode. Yeah. Yeah. Tell us about it. Well, I don't know. Just because it's pure camp in like the best way possible. And I, I, I just enjoy it because she has her like final scene where like, you know, she's kind of like wistfully thinking about everything that just went down and she like puts her sunglasses on and is like, you know, makes a comment like, hey, you can never turn back the clock, can you? And then there's like like light blues guitar playing in the background while she it's just dope. <laughs> it's just pure like like it's it's what it's like what I like about season one law and order anyway. There's just like this camp value at times. Um, it's also this. It's uh, there's a thing with eyes too, apparently, in the first season of Law and Order, because this is the second time we've seen so, um, the campiest scene being somebody, a woman who was blinded. Yeah, or, you yeah. Know. and and, this, and and two times within three episodes, pretty. That's a lot. 
That's that a is lot. a lot. So they, they probably had somebody in the makeup department that was just really good at that. That <laughs> was like, like, hey, guys. Wait, what can we this do? This was my uh, specialty. Uh, <laughs> yeah, their their makeup guy is like really obsessed with Fulci's The Beyond. And so yeah. he just wants more excuses <laughs> to get like, how can I get women with white eyes in this? Uh, <laughs> completely white eyes. <laughs> um. So after that dramatic little scene, they walk out of the the investigation room. And Munch comes up to Benson and Stabler and says, hey, guys, she didn't make it, referencing Jasmine. And uh, then the episode ends. Just cuts. So ends. we're just left with, oh, the girl that was fighting in the hospital this whole time that they were trying to solve her case. She ended up dying. It's it's the yeah. uh, the law and order thesis of you can only control your job. You know, yep. there's all this all other you can stuff. do is do your job. Yeah. Um, well. Um, yeah. Why don't we dive into the the movie now? Which, Let's do it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't know. I feel like the episode is more interesting than this movie in a lot of ways. <laughs> yeah, uh, this this movie. So so yeah. So we're the the next up here is Boston Strangler twenty twenty three, um, or as I would like to call it, um, Zodiac. But it's about the Boston Strangler and the protagonist yeah. is female. Uh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> Which it's kind of it's kind of funny because like yeah this Boston Strangler movie is a lot more correct yes. uh, in its outlook but it's the worst movie it's a less pleasant film to watch it is it's not as well made of a movie but it is uh it is the movie that uh, gets the facts right yeah like you said um, it does it does it is notorious for um for not notorious but it is known for um you know getting getting the story right for the most part yep so it's uh yeah decent decent script good cast uh just looks like a cheap zodiac knockoff yeah it's uh it's 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 um it's not a bad movie it's, it's just, not bad it's, no, it's, it's got it's... that um that like film through an instagram filter look that a lot of like it's not a netflix original but it kind of felt like a netflix, it's very, netflix original yeah. yeah right and it's that's the depressing thing. It's like a 20th century Fox film just dumped right to Hulu. And it's like, that's what we're reduced to is these like great studio imprints are just making TV movies with A-list stars now. Like the, yeah. which the cast a, kills it. Kira Knightley, like yeah. kill the kill. It. They're yeah. amazing. Kira Knightley yeah. and Carrie Coon are amazing mm-hmm. in it. Um, yeah. But, Chris, Chris Cooper is the newspaper editor. was really good too. Oh, so it's so like, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. So it's well cast, well acted, uh, just stylistically boring and kind of a bummer to look at it's just the colors are so muted and uh -hmm. and not in a very compelling way a lot of a lot of like oh we couldn't afford to shoot on location so here's a bunch of like cgi composites of what we think 1950s or you know 1960s boston looked like yeah Uh, yeah. I wanted to point out while y'all mentioned um, some of the stars that are in the movie, um, Robert John Burke, the actor um, who plays Tucker in Law and Order SVU, is in this movie. Who's he play? Um, he plays like I don't know some asshole. Um, <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, just some like mis- miscellaneous like, some, guy in one of the lineups or something. He's some one of the higher ups in the uh, newspaper who doesn't want them uh, to speak badly about the police. Oh, he's that. He's the asshole guy. He's the, yeah. the foil throughout it all. Who's yeah. like, yeah, 
Yeah, he's the one who's like, you know, we shouldn't be having women on this case. Okay, so we should probably get to the actual plot before we keep saying stuff about it. So this is this is a distinctly it's supposed to be kind of a gender, more gendered take on the Boston Strangler because it's following uh Loretta Loretta McLawlin. Thank you. Um who who's is played by Kira Knightley. Yes. And then uh who's who's the other journalist? Uh, um, Carrie Coon plays Jean Cole. Jean Cole. And so those were the two journalists who broke the Boston Strangler story. And, you know, I, I there, it is ripe for an interesting story there, too, because it's like specifically like d- female journalists were not um, common in the 60s. And so, you know, it is ripe for a pretty good uh, story. I'm just not sure it deals with it perfectly. At least but, certainly not for this kind of topic. Yeah. Like they were writing, but they were writing lifestyle yeah, which the the it captures you know, that because yeah, both uh both of them, you know, they start out stuck in like lifestyle or whatever, and then they yeah, they, they you know, force themselves uh, into homicide. Yeah, Jean, well, Jean Cole was doing that like undercover thing at a nursing home, so she was, she was like a little farther. Up, she was yeah. a little. She was doing like investigative reporting, but it was like not. Yeah, it wasn't homicide. It wasn't like major crime. It was still something. You know. Yeah. But it was, yeah, yeah, it was not like a lifestyle column or something like that. That being said, you know, this doesn't like, this film doesn't fully fall into being like a girl boss kind of movie either, because, you know, one thing that comes out as this goes on is that they did kind of blow it in their coverage by being the first to call the Boston Strangler a single person. They, mm-hmm. they ended up being the ones that were wrong. Um, yeah. So it's definitely not like women are perfect. The show, the movie right. is definitely not making that claim by any. No, means. but it, it it is unique in that it focuses on focuses on a it, female yeah. perspective in the story. Yep. Um. So, you know, when the movie begins, we have Kira Knightley um, collecting snippings of newspaper articles about murders in the area. Um. And right off the bat, like we said, she's she's on the lifestyle column. Um, the first thing she has to do, which I find is so funny, is her boss comes up to her and slams a toaster on her desk and says, here, you're in charge of of product review for the day. (laughs) And she, there's a scene of her just making toast and just typing something up about it. (laughs) And it's, it's just funny, um, the kind of work that she has to do on the lifestyle desk. Um, but her boss, um, she goes to her boss and is like, Hey, I've been collecting all these newspaper clippings of all these murders. I think they're linked. Um, I think they're all by one killer. Uh, let me do a story on it. And he's like, "Mm, fuck no girl. Uh, what are you talking about? And she's like, please, please. I'll do it on my own time. I won't, you know, I won't do it at work here. And he's like, fine. Only if you do it on your own time. And she's like, okay. Um, so, which is crazy. Um, why does she have to get permission from her boss about what she does on her own time? Um, but, but she got permission. And so she, she interviews the first victim that she finds. Um, and this is the victim that had the broom stuck up in between her legs and a, and a bow tied uh-huh. around her neck. Um, so she interviews the first victim and um, does some really impressive investigative work where she eventually uncovers that all three victims had a bow tied around her neck. She does this really smart move where she goes into one of the uh, arresting or the, you know, the, the officer who found the third victim. She went up to him, not knowing if there was a bow or not in that case and said, Hey, when you found the bow, was it a one or two knots? 
and kind of yeah. tricked him into answering, oh, I'm not sure how many knots it was. It was just a bow. And she was like, oh, okay, thank you. <laughs> and so he then confirmed for her, yeah, a bow was involved in all three cases. And she started linking the cases together more and more. And um, she then dropped the story about it being a serial killer. Um, she dropped the story first in the city and it kind of like rocked the city. You know, like everyone was shocked by it and everyone was talking about it. So then the police co commissioner comes in and threatens the newspaper editor. Um, so the newspaper editor um, says he's going to pull the story from Loretta. He's like, you can't cover this anymore. The police commissioner is really upset that you called this a serial killing when they haven't released that information to the public. And, um, you know, you, you got to get off this story because the police are upset. But then a fourth victim is found. So they decide to put Loretta back on the story. And then in comes uh, the Carrie Coon uh, uh, playing Gene Cole. Um, so Gene Cole comes in, who is a, you know, a seasoned reporter who's had more experience. And they bring her in to assist, um, assist in the process. Um, so they, uh, they make a page one story about, about the, um, the case and they, they name him the Boston Strangler, um, which is unique because, um, he was called many things before. He was called a maniac. He was called a nut. He was called, um, Phantom, Phantom, um, the silk stocking murderer, the measuring man, the green man, he was called many things, but they were the ones to officially put the term the Boston Strangler on it. And that's now the term we use today. Um, so it certainly had a lasting impact, their their journalistic work they did. Um, and the police commissioner um, kind of appeared and said, women, don't let strangers in your home. And um, that's kind of all the guidance that the police were able to give the public at the time. Um, and Loretta and Jean Cole were very critical of the police. They then decided to get a bunch of hate mail or um, just feedback from women who were scared of the Boston Strangler, like elderly women just writing in and saying they're scared, they're worried, and, oh, here's what they've seen, here's what they've heard, and they just start getting lots and lots of letters in from the public. Um, they become really popular uh, journalists because of it. Um, and they start getting, you know, threats as well later on in the movie because someone was doing like, like ghost calls to Loretta's house, like calling and not saying anything or just heavy breathing and kind of trying to freak them out. And Loretta kind of brought it up with Jean and Jean was like, yeah, that's why I keep my number unlisted ever since I covered that last mayor's race is people wouldn't leave me alone after that. So she kind of learned her lesson about being a female reporter is, um, you know, the people were harassing her. Yeah. And I, I mean, the so the, the film kind of follows the kind of trend of, I mean, it's kind of like Zodiac too, right? Where it comes in bursts of, of, you know, headlines they go through and new information they get as more victims kind of come up and, um, you know, kind of fast forwarding this a little bit, you know, that's uh, eventually they, they become openly critical of the police in the newspaper and, um, you know, it ends up causing some changes in how the investigation goes, although not much. And so we eventually get to um, actually, I, I believe Kira Knightley, uh, L Loretta is the first to 
no, she isn't the first to discover DeSalvo, but she, in at least in the film, pu- ends up pushing um, Bottomley. Is that his name? Yeah. Mm-hmm. She yeah. ends up pushing Bottomley into reinvestigating DeSalvo, and then it eventually leads to the forced confession that, uh, you know, is, is famously depicted in the previous movie we talked about and uh, the last episode from last episode. Yeah. Um, uh, there's al- there, there's also a scene where, uh, well, what was it? They, they run into the detective advising on the filming of the, the uh, yeah. interrogation scene. Uh, <laughs> for that's totally the, supposed to be the Boston Strangler movie, the yeah, 60s yeah. one. Yeah, it totally makes an appearance. Yeah, he's like, he's uh, supposed to lay into him a little harder. <laughs> yeah, uh, what yeah. and then kind of like the the last act. It, and so, of course, all through all of this, you're, you kind of see Kira Knightley's you know pressures as a woman. Like, at first, her husband is very supportive of her career, but as, as it takes over more and more of her life, less supportive get separated he takes mm-hmm. it you know so you see the like kind of personal toll that they take on uh while reporting this story and then which is also what happens in zodiac i'm yeah. pretty sure <laughs> <laughs> yep um exactly and then yeah the last act is them kind of realizing uh there there was a lot more to it than than just uh it wasn't just a salvo pretty clearly yeah and i think that's actually i think the most interesting chunk of the film is that final third where it um because it's it it, that's where it decides to actually get into you know a lot of the objections people have to DeSalvo being the the boss and strangler that we've we've talked a bit about already and so the film kind of um its thesis ends up being oh god so like because uh, I don't want to walk through all the investigation work that gets her to this conclusion, but you know, she, she's, she's still investigating this after supposedly the case is closed. And you know, the main thing they find out is, um, and this is what happened in real life. DeSalvo's confession initially happened where he confessed to his cellmate and his cellmate reported him. And so they talk to the cellmate and also note that the cellmate gets, uh, his name's Nasser. He got pointed out in a lineup. So they're like, wait a second, maybe Nasser is the killer. And so they start talking to Nasser and Nasser gets, I would say, the best scene in this movie, which is the final chunk where he yep. gets his monologue about how the reason they needed to blame DeSalvo and they coached DeSalvo to, you know, eventually take the blame for all this is that they needed to get rid of the myth. And it's because the myth of the Boston Strangler is covering up for a fact that nobody wants to deal with, which is that men are violent to women and it is not a single person doing this. The, the reality is, is we have a culture invested with Boston stranglers, plural. And so DeSalvo may have committed one of them. He may have come in and Nasser says, I know for a fact he committed at least one of them, but like, you know, um, the others were the result of, some of copycat murders and people who were using the, you know, the, the, vi- the, the, the Boston strangler myth to get away with murder. And so the final thesis that the film comes to is that the, um, the first initial six victims or whatever, the, the elderly victims were one killer, um, which is a fictional killer in the movie. Um, so this isn't a full thesis. It's, you know, it's kind of a stand in, but that there was an initial Boston strangler for a couple and that one had the, you know, the focus on elderly women. And then DeSalvo comes in and accounts for some of the young women. And then, you know, after that, it's um, it's case by case. And, yeah. you know, probably like 
an employer gets, well, you know, in, in the, in the film, one of the murders is, and I don't know if this is based off a real one or not, but one of yes, the, one of the, pregnant, oh, it is the, the yeah, pregnant woman, a pregnant, a pregnant secretary. One of the women were, one of the women was pregnant when she got murdered. Yeah. Um, and so the film suggests it was the employer who impregnated her. Yep. Um, so and to, killed her to, yeah, to get rid yeah. of her and the baby. So it, in in some way, these were all inconvenient women for otherwise respectable members of Men. society, or at yeah. least in a couple cases. But then, it, right, it, it became this, you know, free use mythology that one could participate. Yeah, you in. tie the bow around the neck, um, and suddenly it wasn't you. You yeah. were no longer a suspect. You know. Yeah. So I that so that kind of hits something that's uh, been a fascination of mine. So I'm a I don't know I. I I read it in one of my more credulous moments, um, but it was a program to kill by, by David McGowan, uh, mm-hmm. the politics of serial murder. So I don't know. I don't know how I, I don't really hold fast to his conclusions because he has kind of a very cons- specific conspiracy in mind when he comes to the end of it. Um, but like the basic thesis is there are very few serial killers. They are, it, 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 it's uh it's it's usually a group a lot of these uh, a lot of a lot of murders attributed to serial killers have some may have ties to the drug trade may have ties to other things that are often disregarded in the media narrative um so he's just kind of arguing that like a proper serial killer as we conceive of it is a very rare thing but a lot of uh a lot of crimes we attribute to serial killers are are related to other things that you know mysterious powers don't want you to know about um mm-hmm. so then he gets into a very specific like oh the government runs like i, I mean phil chrisman uh had an, his article on conspiracy theory addressed it so he's like really i think he's correct that you know you can't buy into the conclusions but i think the thought that a lot of people that we consider to be serial killers are are just like you know are the scapegoat are are the are a member of a a wider group or a loose association of people engaged in this activity for whatever reason because i i don't know i think it's just more more common that it's like a group of men egging each other on to indulge in this rather than like you know the typical lone wolf and it's like so you know kind of as a society we want like that Nasser monologue, monologue, monologue says is like we want the uh, doing it. We want it. We want the singular monster. We don't want to acknowledge that our society is really good at producing a lot of men who like to kill women. <laughs> yeah, they did. They did say that. Is they? He said that people needed to believe it was one guy because then their safe world would be a delusion if it wasn't. That there would be many Del Salvos. He said. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and this people is, didn't uh, want to believe that they I, wanted I, to believe that there was one guy and he had been stopped. He had been caught and stopped. Yeah, it's it's aberrant psychology and not you know not something inherent to the way we socialize men in this culture, mm-hmm. <laughs> the way we socialize women in this culture. Uh, you know what we hold up as as our ideals of masculinity and femininity um yeah well this this kind of plugs into um uh uh pat blanchfield's thesis about guns gun violence as well in a weird way because it's it's if you were you trade out serial killers for school shooters for instance i mean is um, yeah kind of the yeah 
the kind evolution of feel, in that behavior. Yeah, it, it kind of is. Yeah, because the serial killer, like specifically, is a few decades that it's really a big thing, yeah. and then as it declines, we get the school shooters starting to rise up in the '90s. So I, I don't think it's an unfair uh, comparison. Right, yeah, it's, yeah, they got the authorities got right. It got too easy to catch like serial killers. killers. Yeah, uh, yeah, and so if you want to, right, it became more about the the single spectacular act rather than. Mm-hmm. a you know to put it in vulgar terms a body count yeah and um you know pat pat blanchfield's thing of course is that um well we should of course focus on school shootings they make up less of less of gun violence like they, they don't make up the majority of gun violence and it's kind yeah. of a diversion from a more disturbing reality which is that like the grand majority of like gun violence is usually done within the home by an aggressive male father figure or something like yep. murdering his family. And so, yep. uh, you know, yeah, the freedom to annihilate your family and yourself. That is yeah, like that. Yeah. That is his thesis. That is the fundamental right of the American order is that to guarantee yeah. a white man can own a firearm and dispose of himself as, and his family as he sees fit. Yeah. And, you know, and when you put it in that light, then suddenly school shootings become kind of a weird spillover of that same kind of psychology or whatever. It's the right. Um, it's the sun acting out. It's the. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I, you know, I, I think that's kind of similar to the thesis going on here with uh, the Boston Strangler as well. And serial killers. It's, it's that we like to focus on the big intense, you know, spectacular, you know, like the spectacle of violence or whatever, um, because we don't want to deal with the more heinous reality, which is that like individual, like there yeah. is, we have a structure, like uh, we, 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 we structurally encourage men to be violent and to rape and to murder. Like this is a thing that happens yeah. a lot. And right. There, there is the legal prohibition, but again, there like a, uh, a piece of writing. I, I will never stop, uh, um, referencing uh, a special journey to our bottom line the the hidden curriculum of masculinity the unwritten codes of mm-hmm. uh of empire that uh <laughs> seem to seep into all of our institutions but yeah it's uh right we it's all structured to serve the patriarch and the patri- the patriarch uh has power over life and death yeah the patriarch takes what he wants um pretty yeah, cool and I, pretty cool uh well i also what was that gender gender what a concept um i was also going to mention also josh though you uh you also wanted to bring up renee gerard at some point right (laughs) i I think we've alluded at that a little bit already by mentioning scapegoats a few times but um yeah yeah so right and that's and that's what we're seeing in in like the phenomena of 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 serial killers like i think especially like in this boston strangler case all this law and order stuff and kind of like you know we've gotten a lot of takes on on the different myth and it goes you know kind of lands on uh yeah we just train men to rape and murder but uh yeah that that yeah that process of scapegoating and that pro there's kind of a process of deification that goes in with that um and it's mm. it it's kind of interesting how that that plays out. So like like Rene Rene Girard's thesis and the book I've read is I see Satan fall like lightning. But you know he's he's a man. What is he? He's mostly doing Christology. So he's trying to explain what he thinks to be like the innovation of Christianity is the innov- you know the the yeah. spiritual innovation that that Christ is bringing into into it. And so he kind of starts from this place of like okay, uh, 
his basic concept is mimetic desire. Like no isolated human knows how to desire by themselves. We learn how to desire through other people's desires. Um, and so his point is that like, you know, so that's why you see a lot of the, the commonality of like prohibitions against, you know, coveting your neighbor's stuff. So, you know, even though this is a necessary mechanism by which we learn how to want, we learn how to clarify our own desires. It also leads to tension amongst members in the community. Uh, so, so Gerard's thesis is like, well, yeah, sometimes those tensions, you know, reach a point and somebody gets killed. You know, nobody can really face up to like, what the core of it is so you pick you pick somebody usually an outcast of you know some marginalized or aberrant person of some sort say they did it and you just fucking kill them and then everybody's like well i feel better now um and then it goes on but then you you sort of start to you know that guilt manifest manifests as like ritual behavior and you you deify the victim so he's arguing that literally like every god in the Greek pantheon is a deification of an original murder victim from these, you know, you know, these primal moments in, in, in early communities or something. So, uh, you know, I'm, I, yeah, I'm not a proper religious sculpt, um, scholar, but it's, 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 it's a compelling, it's an interesting idea. It's an interesting idea. Even if it's not Um, like correct, it's kind of interesting in its own right. 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 There's, there's some sort of psychoanalytic or psycho psychological truth to it, but yeah, I just have no idea if the history actually bears that out. Um, But I think it, it does make sense at least in the development of Christianity. Uh, I'm, you know, I, not not a believer but i'm pretty compelled by some of us I, I mean i hold renee gerard and some with some suspicion because peter Thiel likes him a lot that always freaked me out <laughs> yeah, like the entire yeah. the entire theoretical for ba- basis for like paypal and shit or the entire basis for like peter Thiel's worldview is is renee gerard's theory of mimetic desire so got to put that out there like <laughs> that's yeah it's it's worth it and yeah. i've definitely heard gerard used in pretty gross ways before yeah. where people are yeah. like kind of mistaking his point of like the scapegoat still can be a guilty person the point is that we scapegoat society's violence onto them or something like yeah. that yeah. but i've seen it used where it's like see this is what was so wrong about the nuremberg trials and it's like no like no <laughs> I think we should probably still have put like Nazis in in jail. Like, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'm sorry, yeah. but I, yeah, <laughs> but yeah. That's so right. Yeah. So, but I, I think it's it it's some good conceptual language to talk about this process by which we we see we see a thing that happens in society. Something captures our attention. Some spectacular form of violence that seems to well gendered violence. Uh, you know. Usually, I mean, a lot of serial murder is extremely gendered men yeah. killing women for the most part. Um, and uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, there there is a, a major desire to ignore the fact that like, like, like we've already said, we just we produce this society is really good at producing individuals that engage in this behavior. And kind of the way we psychologically cope with this is by pinning it all on one aberrant personality rather than recognizing there are way too many men in the society that fantasize and actually do kill women. <laughs> I I kind of want to like roll with your with bringing up Gerard here a little bit too cuz I think there's a couple questions that have popped into my head. The first is like if he's right, does that mean to some extent or another we um we deify serial killers? And so like uh, are are serial killers like 
the Greek gods of American culture. Well, I mean, that's that's almost a cliche at this point. I mean, Natural Born yeah. Killers is about is about this phenomenon. Like, I mean, that yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, the school shooter. That's a spectacular. Like, a part of the consideration is like how big of a media impact you're going to have. Like, you know that yeah. era, you know the the era of ser- you know the development of serial killers is also along the development of mass media. Um, they are media objects as much as like actual psychological phenomenon. And like, I mean, the more I, you know, again, not an expert, but the more I look into like this, especially like the psychological side from the perspective of law enforcement, like the less I'm convinced about like, you know, pathological personality types and stuff. Like, I mean, these things are like, it's, it's a theoretical language to deal with some phenomenon, but like we're, we're, but it's still like none of it's like a hundred percent and you do have to kind of like, uh, man, I don't know where I was. No, I think, yeah, I think you're right. I think you're right though. Um, the other thing I I wanted to mention with that pops in my head when you were talking about Gerard though is, and I don't know what to do with this thought, but it's a connection and hopefully someone else will have something to roll with, with here. (laughs) But, so what does this say about models in the first, in the episode, the SVU episode we talked about, we have the Camille Peglia line right. getting dropped kind of pretty intentionally that, that models are the Greek goddesses of now of the modern age or whatever. Like, is there something to be said that there's, that this kind of works as well? Like, does this theoretical model like say something about like at least how SVU sees modeling? Yeah. I don't know about, you know, broadly, I, but yeah. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I've done some like ancillary or not ancillary reading. No, I've, I've been, I've been reading the Warner to Iliad before, before bedtime off and on yeah. for, I'm almost done with the book, but like, um, he, yeah. Problematic fave John Dolan, uh, his, his portrayal of the gods is as like, I mean, it's, I, it, you know, they're kind of like, I, I don't know. They're, they're, they're so much more bickering and down to earth and capricious than even like the proper mythology really, uh, conveys, um, uh-huh. I don't know, but there's something about like, I, I've just been thinking about the continued obsession with them, even to now the, with the, with the Greek gods and, and, and the, yeah. uh, the extent to which like a stratified society like ours, a, such a class divided society might, might be invested still in that. Uh, cause I mean, a lot, uh, there, there's, uh, there's some sort of commerce building downtown Chicago has like a Greek God statue on the top. Like this iconography keeps showing up in like civic and business architecture. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know. So there's something about like, Oh, there, there is a class that, that runs everything on top. And there's a lot of people down here below. And we seem to actualize that through our media. Like, mm-hmm you know, supermodels being held up as these like beauty ideals. Um, and you know, uh, serial killers, you know, you know, they're, uh, yeah. Deified they're, you know, demonized, you know, the demonized Uh individual. Um, but, but the fact that like, yeah, you, there's so much content produced about them. Like they're there. Yeah. There's, um, yeah. So it's like, there, there is something of like our society's angels and devils and kind of the, uh, the relationship between the two, you know, we have uh-huh. these, the right, these, these, uh, these women that are, are, are more perfect than, than is, you know, beauty that is unattainable. And then the, uh, 
the sick men who can't who the only way to possess that the only way to control that is to destroy the person yeah hmm. gender 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 um, um so good thing it's uh it's it's all fake and we can just do better stuff <laughs> Let's just all do better. Well, I was going to say, um, if y'all are interested in the topic of, um, you know, like, who who are the deities of our time or whatever, um, I'd like to bring forth Evan Peter, uh, Peters, um, who uh, played Dahmer in, in uh, Dahmer the Monster, the Jeffrey Dahmer story that, that aired that on like Netflix. last year, right? Yeah. yeah. I was going to say what's interesting about that show is people are really interested in serial killer stories. Um, the Dahmer Netflix original um, had 850 million viewers in the first month. Then the only show that had that much more viewers was Stranger Things and Wednesday. So it was one of the highest watched um, shows, quickly watched shows. So people love stories about serial killers. So people do kind of deify their serial killers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, they're, yeah. They're, um, and they're... they, you know, they, they get obsessed with, um, trying to solve, uh, solve crimes on yeah. like social media. There's like whole subreddits and TikToks and, you know, other social media platforms that kind of, um, turn it into a game. They're trying to investigate, like, for instance, the Gabby Petito murder um, was, right, was yep, another yeah. one that got kind of, you know, really blown blown out of proportion on social media with people harassing the families and stuff. Yeah. Man, I don't I don't know what to do with a lot of this. You know what right. I mean? I mean well, like there's that, <laughs> yeah, that, that article, True Crime is Rotting Our Brains, like, you know, there is a correlation, like, if you're obsessed with true crime, you're generally not doing great in your personal life. Yeah. Like, you know, there, there is something like reflective about like those. Cause yeah, I mean, my, my obsession with true crimes like really does correlate with like more turbulent phases of my actual life, like, you know, insecurity yeah. and employment or, uh, you know, other, other things of a personal nature, uh, <laughs> affecting yeah, my, uh, my ability to function. I'll uh, I'll link that in the that uh, uh article in the show notes that we're referencing here. True crime is rotting our brains by Emma Burquist. Burquist. I hope I'm pronouncing Bur- right. Burquist. Burquist. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it's a pretty good. It's pretty good. Um, yeah. And actually, I think they focus. I think she focuses on the Gabby Petito story a little bit in that yeah, article yeah. as well. Yeah, it makes a lot of the same po- pains. Which of course it doesn't mean like not to. You don't have. We're not like trying to like lecture you for like listening to a true crime right, podcast yeah, yeah. or it's, something. Like it's it's, it's more just like it's, what does this like, mean culturally though? Right. You know? Yeah. Yeah. It's like yeah, not moralizing media consumption because like right. Yeah. Correlation is not causation. Like you know, it is. It is. It's another outside circumstance that kind of draw. You know that kind of pushes you in a certain direction. But I think like, I don't know, just don't wind up like those people that run that true crime obsessed podcast where they just recap true crime shows and soy face the whole time. Don't do, <laughs> just don't do that. And you're fine. Um, but I, I mean, a lot, uh, just kind of a thought on like, you know, deification. I think it's, you know, these are, these are actual people, but in some respect, like we've decided they're beyond humanity. It's this, it's this, uh, the deification happens because we refuse to acknowledge that murder obsession and, and the things that serial killers do are, are an aspect of humanity. It's not, mm-hmm. 
murder is not beyond us and it never has been. Yeah. Um, but like we're, we're, the fantasy is that we're all normal and only the most aberrant psychology manifests as violent behavior. Uh, mm. when the fact of the matter is like, they're all just, they're all just people. And, you know, it's some combination of, you know, we don't know the exact split, but it's, you know, a combination of their innate capacities and their circumstances and experiences that lead them to commit these acts. Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, I think we actually worked toward a really interesting conclusion to this two-parter. Actually, we did actually have some like reflections on serial murder and stuff. I don't know. Uh, Chimera, is there anything else you want to make, you want to bring up before we um, wrap nothing up, in I particular? Um, did we cover um, kind of what hen- happens at the end of the movie? We get kind of some slideshows with some text at the right. end of the movie. We get a we get a where are they now kind of thing. Yeah, at the end. where are they now? So let's let's go over that. Um, several people um, got away with murder, supposedly. Loretta McLaughlin becomes a medical reporter for the Boston Globe, and she becomes one of the first reporters to report on the AIDS crisis. Oh. So it's nice to cool. see that you know she goes on to continue to do good work. Loretta and her dog shit boyfriend or her dog shit husband, James, uh, divorce. Um, so good for her. Um, Jean Cole continued to be an investigative reporter for at least 30 more years. Daniel Marsh was never charged with a crime. George Nasser is still in prison. He received the, he never received, uh, the reward money. Um, so his whole motivation for turning De, uh, in was for the reward money and he didn't get any of it so never paid off that's that's dog shit um and then in 2013 uh de salvo was linked to uh the 13th murder through dna evidence the murder of mary sullivan um and it says the other 12 murders remain unsolved so we're just kind of left with that we 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 uh, skipped over it in the movie. It is quickly depicted, but um, also for where are they now? Is of course DeSalvo gets murdered in in either in prison or while he's in psychiatric yeah. care. I don't remember specifically. Yeah, but... in prison he gets he gets stabbed to death in his cell. Yeah, in the mid seventies or so. So that's yeah, also and that was gets... before that was he was talking to Loretta and he was like, hey, you know what? I'll do an interview with her and. And then uh, she goes to bed and then she gets a call the next morning that he's been killed in prison. So she never gets to, you know, get closure on this case. It kind of seems like the case haunts her, honestly, in the show. Like it kind of it's kind of sad, honestly. Yeah, Um, it doesn't portray her as a girl boss. It portrays her as someone who is like desperately trying to follow this case and can't let it go when everyone in her life is begging her to. Now, I can't I don't I can't decide whether that's um, how it how she actually felt or if that's it trying to again model it itself off of zodiac yeah because that's that's the main theme of zodiac is him never being able to let it go but um anyway uh it's it's an okay movie it's on yeah, hulu pretty pretty okay yeah if you want a pretty okay movie it's on hulu <laughs> and i think it i think it did a very good job we didn't talk about this in great detail but i i think it did a very good job of uh, displaying the ineptitudes of the police department 
Um, yeah, because that's it, true. It, it showed how Loretta really guided everything. She was the one who identified um, the murders as being um, one person from the get-go, mm-hmm. um, being a serial killer. And then she was the one who said that they needed to form a centralized investigative unit. And then they did the next day. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's just like all this stuff that she criticized them for not working together and cooperating. And then they continue, you know, then they started doing that. And, um, she also leaked the story about, uh, De, uh, De Salvo. Um, and, you know, she, she really pushed a lot of the, a lot of what was happening. Yeah. Yeah, it's a good, uh, solid, like, uh, I don't know, what do you call, like, a journalism procedural, like, spotlight or a movie like that? Whatever that is. It's, uh, it's a pretty okay. If you like those, <coughs> if you like those kind of movies, it is one of those. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah, th- it, it, yeah it's trying to be spotlight. It, well, yeah, no, it's just trying to be Zodiac. That's a journalism Zodiac, movie, yeah. too. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> but, but, yeah, um, journalism procedural. Um, yeah. Well, I think, uh, I think that's wh- about it. I think that's all we got to say about this yeah. we did it we tackled serial killers this early yeah. on too good, we good did we tackled yeah. serial killers and we tackled a two-part mm. episode that's so awesome so we somehow didn't get bored this whole time of talking yeah. about the same the same guy i i i had a good time mm-hmm. um i don't know what we're doing next but whatever it is it's gonna be good uh, thank you so much <laughs> for listening to law and order or, uh, uh thank <laughs> you so much for listening to <laughs> The Good Apples. Not it's it's a podcast about Law and Order SVU, and I have been Josiah. I'm Kamira. I've been Josh. And uh, and thanks for sticking around. Uh, dun dun. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>